Amen. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, choir. Before Brother Ken left on his trip to Israel with many of our own church members, he had said uh, that after Dr. Harris, there were going to be two great theologians preaching in the pulpit. I'm still waiting for the other guy. Uh, I'm very glad to be here in the house of the Lord this morning and bring his word to you. The title of this message is from Rebellion to Redemption. And in a few moments, we're going to be turning to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. But before we do, I want to read you a story that highlights the theme of what we're talking about. The story of a man whose life was irrevocably changed by his encounter with Jesus. And how that decision has impacted millions of hearts to this day. It was December 1772 in Oli, England. At the age of 47, John Newton began writing of a hymn that would grow increasingly more popular over the next 350 years. And although everyone's conversion story is unique, there's something about this hymn that has resonated with Christians all over the world. In the hymn, Newton discusses where he was when he found God, or rather when God found him. He was a wretch. He was lost and he was blind in sin. Newton grew up with both of his mother and his father. However, his mother passed away when his father was away at sea. But as he grew older, he chose to follow the career path of his father, going up and down the African coast for slaves to capture and to eventually sell for profit. On one journey in particular, Newton and his crew encountered a storm that swept most of his men overboard and left many others with a likelihood of drowning. And with doom on the horizon, he gripped the wheel of the boat and cried out to God, Lord, have mercy on me. After 11 hours of steering, the remainder of the crew found safety with the calming of the storm. And from then on, Newton marked March 21st as a day set aside for a time of humiliation, prayer, and worship. And upon arriving safely home, Newton chose not to go back to his occupation. Instead, he chose to study the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. And he eventually accepted requests from various congregations to recount his conversion story. Eventually, he was ordained and began to lead his own church. God had changed him from a man who was an advocate for the slave trade to a man actively working towards abolishing it. His literary work encouraged a young politician, William Wilberforce, to continue his legal fight against slavery in England. In later years, Newton began to lose his memory, but even as his thoughts began to fade, he remembered two very important things. He said, I am a great sinner, and he is a great savior. With this conviction of newly found life, found only in Christ, Newton passed from his earthly life in 1807 at the age of 82. Thankfully, he lived to see the completion of the act for the abolition of the slave trade. However, before he met Christ, he experienced darkness, hopelessness of his sin and the consequences of following his own way in his own direction. He focused on fulfilling what he wanted to do with his life instead of looking for the direction of God. In the second stanza of his most famous hymn, Newton writes, it was grace that taught his heart to fear the punishment of his sin, and that it was also grace those fears were relieved. This precious grace appeared to him when he was standing in the vicious storm, that moment he first believed. Through the trials and storms of life, it is God's grace that we hold on to, grace that will lead us to heaven to be with him one day. But now, probably realize that the hymn we're talking about is Amazing Grace. 
This timeless song speaks of the sweetness found in God's grace for his children. As humans, we are lost and blind in sin and need saving. Jesus' saving grace is truly amazing. So often we hear hymns of faith like this song over so many years when we were small children until adults. And somehow they kind of lose the splendor and the wonder of those words that were penned that remind us of the importance of God's grace and our need for it. God has promised goodness and provides his word in which we can rest our hope. He is our shield. He is our portion forever. When our life comes to an end, our possession is joy and our peace is in Christ. Although our flesh will fail and earth will come to an end, God, our creator, will remain the same forever and ever. When we reach the glorious streets of heaven, we can sing his praise in his presence. Because of God's sweet and all-encompassing, amazing grace, we can have forgiveness for our past, joy for our present, and hope for our future. The song Amazing Grace is an account of one person's conversion story almost 250 years ago. However, no matter the amount of time, the meaning of this hymn has impacted millions around the world. John Newton began his life as a man that was despicable, despicable in selling other human beings in the slave trade. And as in him, he said he was a wretch, but God found him. He was saved by God's amazing grace, and it is grace that lets God's people free. When at the end of the prodding of the Holy Spirit, we begin to accept it for ourselves. In this story, Newton truly did go from rebellion to redemption, from the cruelest depths of human depravity to the all-encompassing grace of Jesus Christ. When we talk about grace, it can lose its awe when we don't understand where it came from and our position from before we knew Christ. Our position as a sinful people before a holy God. I want us to start there this morning as we move towards the good news at the end of the message. In your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and as he does, in the original Greek, this was a single sentence, this passage, these 10 verses, a proclamation of the saving grace that God offers. For context, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. You may, may differ from mine in some sense, but let's read this together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers and the unseen world, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. And by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We're going to look at the first three verses, the sum of which is our first point this morning. First point is we rebelled against God. We rebelled against God. 
it's critical that we understand how important this amazing grace is because if we do not, we reduce this amazing grace to as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once described it, a cheap grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. However, costly grace, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. We were people in rebellion against our creator totally sold into the idea that we were our own gods, our own authors, yet completely ignorant to the fact that we were dead men walking. Let's read Ephesians 2, verse 1 again. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Bloor, first point, we were dead by our disobedience. We were dead by our disobedience. We were unable to understand and appreciate spiritual things. We were unable to respond to these things unless prompted by the Holy Spirit from our Creator. Now, on that subject, take a small detour for a moment. Does anyone remember the movie The Princess Bride? It's one of my all-time favorite films. In the movie, the hero, Wesley, is seemingly killed by the villain of the piece. And so in his death, he believes that basically all is gone, it's, it's all over. But two friends come to his aid and they save him from the clutches of the villain. They bring him to a miracle worker. What's interesting, though, is that they hope that they can bring him back from the dead. And the good news they find out is that Wesley is only mostly dead. His friends bring him to this miracle worker and he gives him a small potion that brings him back to life ever so slowly. But what's unique in that story is that for us, it's not that different. Being spiritually dead means that we were unable to revive ourselves or make ourselves spiritually alive by ourselves. In some sense, somebody had to bring us to Christ to learn more about him and to know who he was. But the other problem we had in addition to being dead was that we had a master who did not want to let us go. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. So as you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. We were dead in our disobedience, but we were also dominated by the devil. We believed and practiced the original lie from the enemy that I know best. The oldest lie in all of creation, the first lie. The devil doesn't need to be some evil overlord demanding where we go and what we do, and said all he has to do is let little whispers and lies sneak into our hearts, into our minds. This is why Scripture commands us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We must guard our hearts and minds because the enemy would love to drag us back down to where we were. Now, going back to where we were does not mean losing our salvation, but it does mean that we can become so polluted by the enemy and by the world that we become something worse than an unbeliever, a hypocrite. Our world will tolerate just about anything these days 
but they will not tolerate hypocrisy, especially from professing Christians. If we are not spending time with the Lord and other believers in Scripture and prayer and worship, it is only a matter of time before we sabotage our own witness and the devil doesn't have to lift a finger. We were dead by our disobedience, we were dominated by the devil, and we were also damned by our desires. Look at verse 3. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, and by our very nature we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. I only use language as strong as this so that we understand the situation that we were in, how dire it was. God is holy, and we are not. Even our greatest theologians in the world only have a faint grasp of the holiness of who God is. His holiness cannot tolerate sin and wickedness. We were sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards put it. We were incapable of doing anything good that would please God because of our sinful nature. But by our definition, we felt like we were pretty good people. But God does not judge you or I by our own standards. He judges us by his standard. As he says in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. How blinded are we by our own sin that we would ever believe we would have any right to judge ourselves. We cannot change our own desires or our nature. It must be changed for us. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. God is the only one that can change you. It will not come through any podcast, self-help book, TV show, article that you and a million friends shared. It's not going to happen by any of these things. Certainly not by our own self-determination. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, which leads us into our second point this morning. We are reconciled by God. We are reconciled by God. Reconciled or reconciliation means a relationship that was once broken is restored once more. We are restored to God through his son as the beautiful words of John 3:16 reminds us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in the same vein of those words in our passage today it says in Ephesians 2 verse 4 something very similar. It reads, "But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much." The point below that is God loves us. God loves us despite our disobedience. God loves us despite our disobedience. 1 John 4, 8 reminds us that God is love. Well, Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All over scripture, we see evidence of his love, fingerprints of his grace. So many people have the idea for some reason that you have to get right before you come to church, when the opposite is true. We come to church to be right with God as sinners who are in need of His grace and redemption. In addition to loving us, God also raises us to life in Ephesians 2.5, that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So God loves us despite our disobedience, but he also lifts us up from the dead, from the muck and the mire and where we were. 
We are made alive in Christ and through Christ, and it is only through His grace that we can experience salvation. No amount of Bible studies or prayer meetings, books that you may read, none of these things will bring us true salvation. God loves us, He lifts us, and He also leads us. He leads us to His desires. Looking at verses 6 and 7, For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all that He has done for those who are united with Christ Jesus. This passage points us towards God's desire for our lives, what His ultimate desire is for Himself. What is God's ultimate desire? we may ask. John Piper once said, God's ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory of his name. God is due all glory and honor and praise. He is the only one that deserves it. So often we make the mistake as young Christians, as immature believers, and sometimes even when we're older in our faith, we still ask the question, what about me? Where do I fit into this? Because it's a very natural question to ask. However, the Westminster Catechism had said man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The great biblical commentator Warren Wearsby said, God's purpose in our redemption is not simply to rescue us from hell, as great a work as that is. His ultimate purpose in our salvation is that for all eternity, the church might glorify God's grace. Heaven will not be about us. There will be sweet reunions and joyful singing, but it is not about us. It will be about Him, and that is a good thing because we will finally be able to do what we were made for. I would pray that the Lord would work out our selfish desires so that we don't desire to go to heaven, to get what we feel like we're owed, to be with those who we've lost, but that we would seek out heaven so that we can be with our Savior and Lord forever. We had rebelled against God and we were reconciled to Him. And lastly, we're redeemed for God. We are redeemed for God. God has saved you. Just let that sink in for a moment. He has saved you. Ergo, you were a person in need of saving, in need of a Savior. Not simply an accessory to life, but the ultimate chief end goal of your life. In verse 8, it says, God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift that our Lord, He offers to all people, yet it is not accepted by all. If you've gone around to any stores recently, you've probably seen how some are getting a jump on it and they're putting out Christmas decorations, which already prompts us to think about Christmas gifts for family and friends and holidays and all those things that come with it. But keep in mind that when it comes to gifts, you can put a name on a gift, but until that person takes that gift and opens it up, they really haven't accepted it until that moment. If you've never encountered Christ the way we're describing today, I'd like you to imagine this, that He has a gift for you, 
with your name on it, but you have to be the one to accept it. And he wants you to open it and to see the greatest treasure you could ever possibly imagine. God has saved you, but he's also secured you. God has secured you. Verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Salvation is not a reward for what you've done. Rather, it is the result of what Christ has already done for you. How, un, how shaky and unstable would we be if our salvation depended on us, depended on our good behavior and how well we acted in public and in private? Thankfully, we do not have as weak a foundation as that. Rather, our foundation is a rock it is in Christ, in his finished work. God has saved you. He has secured you. He's also sent you. God has sent you. Verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are his masterpiece, his workmanship. We are tools in his hands to be used. We were never meant to sit idly on a shelf. Unfortunately, many people have the idea that they decide to retire from the work of ministry. And I once heard a wise older pastor say, I'll know when God's finished me, with me because I won't be here anymore. The work of ministry is not yet done. And God is not done with you. He still has work for you to do. Life-giving work that he set you apart and planned before time began for you to do and to be used by him for his purposes. In closing, I'd like to share one more story about one of the hymns of our faith. Philip Bliss was a man who was born with a melody in his heart. Born in a log cabin home in a mountain region, his father, Mr. Isaac Bliss, was a dedicated Christian who made time every day for family prayers. There's a lesson in that. These prayers were ingrained upon his childhood memory, and his father was a lover of music, and it was through this love that his father had that he developed a passion for singing. In 1855, 17-year-old Bliss decided that he would take the final step in preparation for his life's work. He would move to Bradford City, Pennsylvania, and finish the last requirements of his teaching credentials. In 1858, he was appointed a teacher in Rome, Pennsylvania, and there he met a young woman named Lucy Young, who was to become his bride. She was a poet from a musical family and greatly encouraged him in developing his own musical talents. In the years following, he would go on to lead in uh, singing at sacred concerts, musical conventions, singing schools, and he was becoming more popular in his work in evangelical singing. He was also writing a number of hymns and Sunday school medleys. One summer night in 1869, while passing a revival meeting in a church where D.L. Moody was preaching, Mr. Bliss went inside to listen, and the singing he was hearing was, for him, weak. Moody was without musical help for the singing, and Mr. Bliss was well aware of it. But from the audience, Philip attracted Mr. Moody's attention. At the door, Mr. Moody got the details about who Mr. Bliss was, and quickly asked him to become his Sunday evening meetings to lead in worship. 
He needed his help in his singing anytime he could give it, and he further urged him to give up his business in becoming a traveling singing evangelist. Around this time, he became an acquaintance of Major Daniel W. Whittle, another famous preacher of the time. And during those years, he wrote popular hymns, Hold the Fort and Jesus Loves Even Me. Many of these songs were published and became the full-time song director under evangelist Daniel Whittle. While ministering to his hometown in Chicago, he spoke these words to the congregation. I may not pass this way again, after which he said, I'm going home tomorrow. His words and his song would soon prove to be prophetic. He and his family were living in Pennsylvania at the time. It was Christmas time, and he was working on a new song. And he went ahead and wrote the words and decided he'd write the music at a later time, but sent it on ahead. And his wife left their young sons with a family in Rome, Pennsylvania, and they boarded the train headed for Chicago for the next evangelistic meeting. The train had to stop for engine repairs, and all the passengers had to stay in a hotel for the night. And his baggage was transferred to another train and was sent on ahead to Chicago. Then on December 29th, 1876, the engine was repaired and the train continued on to Chicago. The Pacific Express was struggling along in a blinding snowstorm and was about three hours late on a Friday afternoon. Eleven coaches pulled by two engines were creeping through the huge drifts approaching Ohio and passing over a trestle bridge that was over a river. The first engine reached solid ground on the other side, but everything else plummeted 75 feet into the icy waters below. Later, it was determined that floodwaters had weakened the bridge. Five minutes after the train had fell into the ravine, fire broke out because the train cars were heated with coal stoves and fanned by the gale-like winds, the wooden coaches were set ablaze. Mr. Bliss successfully escaped through a window in the train car. However, his wife was pinned down under the ironwork of the seats. He returned to her car and remained bravely by her side until the fire consumed them both. All that remained was a charred mass, and no trace of their bodies was ever discovered. For days, it was not known who was among the dead, for the records weren't kept. All that was for sure was there were only 14 survivors out of the 95. In most cases, there was nothing to recover. However, Mr. Bliss's trunk had safely reached Chicago because it had been transferred when the first train stopped for engine repairs. And it was opened. It was found the last song he would ever write. And it began as this. I know not what awaits me. God kindly veils my eyes. The trunk contained many hymn poems which had not yet been written music for. One of the songs found in the baggage was the words to, I will sing to my Redeemer. The funeral was held in Rome, Pennsylvania, where a monument was erected during the inscription P.P. Bliss, author, hold the fort. On December 31st, D.L. Moody spoke at a memorial gathering in Chicago for a service to honor him. Over 8,000 people filled the hall, while over 4,000 waited outside. Philip Bliss understood Ephesians 2.10 very well, that his mission was to accomplish the good works that God had prepared in advance for him to do. His final act of worship was sent on ahead in a suitcase of all things, and has reminded generations of Christians of our need for a Redeemer. This morning, I would encourage you to ask yourself, 
if you've made Christ your Redeemer this day. And if you haven't made that decision, we would love to encourage you to pray about that, to come down today and to speak to one of our staff members about how you can know our Savior in the way we've been talking about today. At this time, let's pray, please. Father, thank you for the truth in your word, for the grace and the life that it gives us, for the goodness that you have shown us through your word, Lord, and that we never forget or become numb to how amazing your grace is. That is, in just a moment, as we sing about how great a redeemer you are, Lord, may we see ourselves as people in need of a Savior. Amen.